Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. Happy 2018. Hopefully, you listened to our last podcast with the great Quant Blair Hull. Today, we got a great show for you. Our guest is a New York Times bestselling author, has won top journalism awards, was a national medalist in rowing, won the Thomas Temple Hoops Prize, which is Harvard's top undergrad honor. And last year, he was named to the Forbes 30 under 30 list. All that for a young buck. He's also written a couple fantastic papers on private equity and replication on the SSRN. He's now the founder, portfolio manager of Verdad Capital. Welcome to the show, Dan Rasmussen. Nice to be on. Thanks for uh, inviting me to join you. Before we get started, you're a young fellow, but why don't you give us just a brief walkthrough of your career? Um, I know there's been a couple stops leading up to the founding of your firm, but go back in time real quick and give us a, a quick overview before we get into the depths of what we're going to talk about today. Sure. So I went to Harvard. I graduated in 2009. I uh, studied the history and literature of the American South. And if you or your listeners are are looking for a sleep aid, I highly recommend my um, book, uh, American Uprising, which came out in 2011 and and was briefly uh, on the New York Times uh, bestseller list, as you uh, referenced. But my dad is a lawyer. And and when I was thinking about what I want to do for a career, he was strongly counseled me against writing or law under the theory that he said that he he was, you know, at the top of his class in law school, and all the people that could barely pass their classes went into business, and they all retired ten years before him and made five times as much money. So he thought, you know, if I, I was as smart as him, business would be a good thing to do. So I ended up in college to intern for Bridgewater Associates, Ray Dalio's fund, and then which was a, a wonderful, fascinating experience. Um, and then after college, I went and worked for Bain Capital Private Equity for four years. And then went to Stanford Business School, worked with Charles Lee, who's a great finance academic at Stanford, and launched uh, this fund for Dad. Um, and we focus on leveraged small value equities, which is we think is a superior alternative to investing in, in private equity. A lot packed into a little. Let's talk a little bit about private equity in general. So you started, I, th- I believe, to set the foundations maybe when you were at Bain and Stanford thinking about private equity. And you think a lot of investors make some mistakes when it comes to private equity. So specifically kind of misunderstanding the true drivers and sources of return stream and some of the potential dangerous effects it can have. So why don't you give our listeners a broad overview of private equity in general, what you mean by private equity? Because by the way, a lot of listeners, when they think of private equity, they actually think of venture capital and startups. So it's a little different, but but give us a broad overview and we can kind of dive into the some of the problems too. Sure. So, you know, when I'm talking about private equity, I'm talking about the leverage buyout industry, you know, the Bain Capital, Carlisle, Apollo, Blackstone, the RGR, Nabisco, Barbarians at the Gates, you know, that world. And I think what's fascinating is, you know, I think the, the history of finance resonates with one great lesson, which is that when everybody agrees on something and when they're borrowing money to bet on it, beware. And I think what you're seeing now is this massive herding of really smart investors, David Swenson among them, is you know, he's one of the leading promoters of this, shifting a lot of assets into quote unquote alternatives, the most important of which, you know, the crown jewel, the alternative universe is private equity. And every endowment, every foundation Every large institution is saying, well, I've got to have a 20% asset allocation to private equity. And they've been flooding the private equity market with capital. And I think Prequin did a recent survey of these institutions. And they asked, you know, do you think private equity will outperform the public equity markets by 4% or more, 2 to 4%, 
you know, less than 2%, even with private equity. They didn't bother to ask whether it would underperform because that's such an outlandish idea. And fascinating, 49% of institutional investors believe that private equity will outperform the public equity market by 4% per year per more. Another 45% believe it'll outperform by 2 to 4% per year. So, you know, 90% of institutional investors plus believe that private equity is basically God's gift to investing. And best of all, you know, I think what's even more interesting, right, because, you know, everyone always, you know, great, you know, big returns are great, but what everyone wants is great returns with low risk. And if you look at historical private equity data, private equity looks to have about two-thirds of the volatility of the S&P 500. In the downturn in 08, public equities, the S&P 500 was down 50%, junk bonds down 50%, private equity is down about 30%. If you look in 2012 to 2015, as private as, as sort of oil prices fell about 50%, public equity energy stocks dropped 50-60%, junk bonds exposed to energy dropped 50 or 60%, and private equity, oil and gas private equity, was marked at one. They didn't lose any money. And so you say, well, you know, gee, this is this is amazing. You know, they're getting these great returns. They don't have any draw, very limited drawdowns, very limited volatility. How could this be, you know, this is sort of the every time they plug it into their little Excel models, private equity just looks like the holy grail of investing. And I think what people are missing is, you know, first of all, private equity is highly levered microcaps, okay? Median market cap of 200 million, median leverage level of 65%, right? These are small, really levered companies. And most private equity funds are non-diversified. They have maybe 15, 20 holdings at a maximum. So tiny portfolios of highly levered microcaps are being bought by institutions through the private equity structure. And because private equity firms make up their own valuations quarter to quarter, they say, ah, what, what, you know, what's this company worth? Ah, about one, you know, one time. It's about what we paid for it. What's it worth this quarter? Ah, you know, maybe a little more than we paid for it. And, you know, if something really bad happens, like the price of oil drops 50% and they're an energy company and their business is collapsing, they might say, ah, maybe it's marked at 0.8 maybe 0.9. And so you have this, and nobody is incented to challenge that, right? Because the guy who's sitting at the institution says, well, it's great that it's not marked down. I don't have to explain to my boss or my investment committee why I made this stupid decision because it actually doesn't look stupid. And they might call and say, well, how is it that, you know, oil prices are down 50% and, you know, your portfolio is marked at one? And they'll say, ah, you know, we're looking through the cycle, you know, we're basing it on a large, longer term multiples. And, and of course, uh, Mevin, if you and I could do that on our public equity portfolios, we'd be thrilled. But unfortunately, my mother uh, doesn't have time to mark my portfolios every quarter. So I'm stuck with using the public equity markets. That would be the beauty. I mean, and, and we used to do a lot of research on the endowments, and it's almost like an ostrich sticking his head in the sand, you know, on July 4th, pulling it up again the next year and avoiding the weather the whole year. It's like, is the average weather 70 degrees? No, of course not. It's crazy. And a lot of the endowment entire portfolios, when we looked at them and modeled them, we said, hey, they're claiming a 20% loss, but the intra-year drawdown for something similar was probably at least half. And some of them was even more. And that's on the broad allocation for some of these. Okay. So you have a couple things wrapped in here. First of which, I appreciate the RJR reference because I went to high school in Winston-Salem, as did my co-host Jeff. So we actually went to RJR High School, which is kind of oh, astonishing. Wow. I know, right? <laughs> There's, um, It's pretty amazing. Still named that. Beautiful high school, though. It's on like the historic register for a gorgeous high school. But um, my, my grandfather was an RJR employee a million gazillion years ago. Anyway, but love the reference to Barbarians of the Gate. But so you've had kind of... There's been a different era in private equity. So when I think back to the 80s and the 90s, you know, one of our favorite phrases here is, is flows change factors and flows change asset classes. So this flows of tons of money into private equity, maybe after, particularly when the Yale model became popular and you've seen Yale, really the standout example of this having just monster success. Do you see that as kind of the main driver of the challenges with the private equity model? Is it, is it just so much money is going in? Do you think people don't understand it? What's kind of the, the main issue on why that may not be kind of an ideal allocation going forward? Sure. So, so I love that. Saying. I've never had the funds, funds change factors. That's, that's exactly what's going on in private equity. I think a really you know, wonderful way of summing it up. And I think so broadly, 
what you have, and going back to my time at Bain Capital, so so we looked at, we did a big study where we looked at every private equity deal done by our top 25 competitors, and we basically drilled down. We, we were sort of, we, did, we sort of did the fama and French of private equity, right? We, we had all the underlying financials for every deal, and we said, okay, what are the quantitative predictors of success? What can we learn from studying 25 years of private equity history? And Bain Capital is one of the only firms that can do this because it's been around since the RJR Nabisco deal. And as we dug in, you know, I'd say first, you know, what separates private equity from public equity? And this is a relevant question because private equity from 1980 to 2010 beat the public equity markets by 6% net of fees per year. And at 2 and 20 fees, that's a 12% per year outperformance for the average, average manager, right? So this is totally different from public equity where the vast majority of active managers lose to the market, right? Somehow, you know, the average Joe that hangs out a shingle is beating the market by 12% a year. So this is just shocking, right? And so what makes private equity special or what made it special? Because I think that's what I'm arguing is that it's changed. So private equity historically, was, it's different from the public equity market in three ways. So size, right? So first of all, these are micro caps. Average market cap of a private equity deal is $200 million versus $33 billion for the S&P 500 or over $2 billion for the Russell 2000. The second is leverage levels. So the average private equity deal is levered about 60 to 65% on a net debt to enterprise value basis. So versus you know the Russell 2000 or the S&P 500, they're generally levered about 15%, if at all. So you know 4x more debt, right? It's the leverage buyout industry. Naturally, we'd expect a lot of debt. And then the third and final thing is, and what's really interesting is that, you know, in the 80s, when Mitt Romney and a few others really started this, they were buying businesses for about four to six times EBIT, three to five times EBITDA. And they were able to do that really until the mid 90s, when other people started to get into the game and multiples started to get pushed up. And, you know, I, re- I found this wonderful old letter from Mitt Romney saying that it was in 92 or 93 saying, you know, we're, we're seeing prices above six times EBIT and that's really worrying us. You, you know, and, and that was at a time when the public equity market was probably trading at twice that. So the first private equity guys, right, the first ones, the, really even the first 20 years of the asset class, they were buying businesses for half to a third of what was, you know, the equivalent public equity comparable company, although obviously the public companies were much bigger, but you know, the same industry or whatever, maybe a third of the valuation. And they were buying it, they were levering it up 65% or so. They were using the cash flow to pay down debt. And then they were selling, often IPOing into the public equity markets or selling to public companies that could make accretive acquisitions at much higher multiples. And so it's perhaps not at all surprising that over that period, you know, tremendous returns were, were generated for investors. And you've got to credit David Swenson and Jim Bailey and, and at Cambridge Associates and others for having the vision to say, gee, you know, we should go into this asset class in the 70s and 80s and, and, and early 90s. I mean, it was brilliant. But what happened is that really starting in 06 and 07, institutional investors woke up, you know, the vast majority of them woke up to what the smart few had been doing and started to pour money into private equity. And, and that accelerated after the financial crisis, really as a result of those two sort of competing desires, right? Everyone's looking to beat the market. No one wants to deal with mark-to-market volatility right after 08. And so private equity looks like sort of the, the holy grail of investing. And so they start putting about really about two to $300 billion per year of new private equity commitments, which is you know probably close to triple the pre-crisis average. And as that happens, you know, there's only a limited supply of private companies that go up for sale every year. And so because, you know, if you're think of relative to, a, say, some small public equity, right, that's 400 million a market cap, you, you sort of look at the shareholder registry and like it's like five quantitative funds or passive indices and then like maybe one active manager. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's and then, you know, five employees of the company. I mean, it's sort of a grab bag. Right now, you go into the private equity market, and you've got like a lawn care business in Des Moines with you know 15 million of EBITDA. Right, you're going to get probably you know a, a good bank could probably get 400 private equity firms interested. Maybe take 50 letters of intent, take 12 to the second round, and then end up you know in a horse race between two final round bidders to sell the darn thing for 15 times EBITDA because one of those people is going to be desperate enough to put their dry powder to work that they'll overpay. And these guys aren't, you know, all these private equity guys have these amazing pedigrees, you know, they went to the best business schools, the best undergrads, and and they're just falling over themselves to create more optimistic Excel models to justify these big purchase prices. 
And so you just see this sort of speculative mania driven by fund flows because all the asset allocators say private equity works. So let's buy private equity. And there's lots of people who are willing to create that supply to build a firm, to go and you know, buy businesses and make them private equity uh, companies. And, uh, and the problem is and what they haven't realized, and this is really the core argument that I'm trying to make and really central to understanding the asset class, is the importance of the interaction of value and leverage. So there is a, uh, you know, obviously there's a value premium, right? We see that across markets. We see it in public equity markets. We, you know, we see it at sort of the country level, right? Countries with lower multiples do better, right? Everywhere, you know, the value effect is everywhere. But in private equity, it's, it's magnified, right? So the, value, the spread between growth and value in private equity is even larger is much, much larger than in public equity because of leverage. And so, you know, if you take a five times EBITDA private equity deal with three turns of debt, three times EBITDA of debt, right, that company is probably generating, that, that deal would generate probably 25% free cash flow yield. Now you double the purchase price and you go up to 10 times EBITDA and you put six times EBITDA of debt, that company is probably generating about a three or 4% free cash flow yield. Because as you've increased the purchase price and increased the debt levels, you increase the interest payments. And so you're not only increase, you're not only increasing the denominators, the equity account gets bigger, but you're dramatically shrinking the, the actual cash flow generating ability of the business because of the substantial interest payments. Uh, and so what we observed at Bain Capital when we looked at this is that roughly 50% of deals done at greater than 10 times EBITDA basically were had, had at least from the 80s till 2010, had zero net returns to investors, net of fees. Essentially, that whole, all the expensive private equity deals just hadn't made any money for anybody in aggregate. And about 60% of the industry's profits had come from below seven times EBITDA. And you look at where prices were and are, you know, if, if they were at, you know, three to five times in the 80s and early 90s, you know, six to eight times in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, they've been above 10 times on average since 2014, 2015. Right, so you're talking about a market where the average purchase is now at a place where, at least according to every piece of work I've done, no money can be made, or no money in aggregate is going to be made, and that's largely because the dynamics of you know heavily levering up a company, right? It just doesn't work. If you look in the public equity markets at companies that are levered six times EBITDA. I'll show you a basket of companies that are on a path to bankruptcy. You know, it's funny as I think about this because you know being a quant. This, this doesn't surprise me. I'd like to hear a little bit about what the response was at Bain. And as you guys kind of talked about this to whether it's coworkers, bosses, clients, whatever, what the response to this was. Because I, I imagine if I had to guess what a private equity shop that see this, that say, well, no, 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 we're different because we're top quartile. And by the way, you know, we've done this in the past and it continues to work. Which, by the way, I don't know if it was one of your charts, but it, was, it might have been someone else's that shows that the persistence, which used to be one of the biggest arguments for private equity of top quartile firms that used to be very high, has actually been declining over the past, I think, 15 years. But I bet the response for a lot of private equity, and correct me if I'm wrong, I would say, no, no, well, we offer a lot of value add on our operational improvements. And so we can pay more because we have great people that we can install and we've done it and we know better you know, our track record is going to be great. Well, what was the response as you guys kind of teased out the data? Yeah, well, I think this comes down to a, a worldview question, right? So I look at investing, and I'm very influenced by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky and Philip Tetlock and others who say, you know, the best way to make a forecast or to make a decision is to ask, how have similar things in the past performed, right? And so Basically, you want to say, okay, what are the statistically significant factors that describe this investment? Um, and then if you look at that combination of factors, you know, have similar companies that look quantitatively similar to this performed in the past, right? And that's my view of how to make good investment decisions. And if you look at the investment world that way, you'd say doing deals at above 10 times EBITDA is nuts because it's never worked. It just doesn't make any sense. However, the private equity world is, you know, I think very qualitative. A typical investment at Bain Capital would be six months of work, a team of six, four of whom had MBAs from Harvard. We'd probably have a million-dollar diligence budget. We'd get a McKinsey team in there. You know, we'd do surveys. We'd, you know, unpack everything about the company. And I think that people that come from that world or from that approach don't think about forecasting or investment decisions. They think that analyze it on a case-by-case -case basis. 
understand the company, its competitors, its trajectory, its future, its products, and then develop an operating plan to drive value improvements. And when you're thinking that way, you know, the purchase price is, is, is an afterthought to some extent, right? I mean, obviously, it's important to the Excel model, and it's going to determine whether it makes sense or not. But it doesn't take on the sort of looming significance it does to those of us who are, you know, informed by the more Kahneman, Tversky, Tetlock type world where we're saying quantitative factors are more predictive of the future than, you know, expert judgment. And so I think by and large, the reaction to a study like this is, okay, great. You know, there are lots of studies are just numbers, you know, what, what does it really show? Whereas I think I'm more quantitatively inclined and want to base my, my investment decisions on evidence and data. And I think that, you know, look, that's still a, a surprisingly small percentage of the investment world that thinks that way. You took this insight. You said, you know what, I'm going to go start my own shop, which you did, I think, back 2015, 2014, maybe. Is that's that right? right. Yep. Okay. Yep. Started your own shop and walk us through kind of how you guys think about your investment framework, about the implementation. So you've taken these ideas and say, all right, I want to make private equity investable with public equities, think we can match what they're doing, if not better after fees. Walk us through your process, what all, kind of what you've learned, how do you put it together, and how do you kind of think about that portfolio and all that good stuff? Yeah, so I think, you know, the core idea is the one we've already discussed, which is that if private equity in the 80s and 90s was so successful, right, the average private equity manager is beating the market by 12% gross of fees per year, right? Why in heaven's name isn't every public equity manager saying, well, gee, the average public equity manager is losing to the market by a percent and a half per year. So why don't we understand what those private equity guys are doing that's so effective, right? Because clearly it's working and what we're doing isn't. And I think that my logic is, okay, well, what are the private equity guys doing from a quantitative perspective? How do we quantitatively define their investment strategy? And it's small, it's micro cap, micro to small cap, right? 200 million a market cap average. It's value. So historically, the vast majority of the returns were at sub seven times EBITDA, which would be, you know, the bottom 10% of the US market today, and probably, you know, the bottom 25% globally. And then I'd say next is the leverage levels, right? The use of debt, the, the, the effective use of debt. And so if you buy a pool of securities that are trading at sub seven times EBITDA, that are, you know, small cap, you know, sub a billion of market cap companies, that are 65, you know, 50, 60% levered, right? So they've got three or four turns of debt on them. You know, will those companies perform like private equity deals, right? Can you get the same results by doing that in public equity markets rather than doing it in private markets? And the answer is yes, you can. Quantitatively, we've tested this. It is true. It works. It's exactly the same. It doesn't make a difference whether it's private or whether it's public. Right now in private markets, yes, you've got the private equity guys claiming that they make operational improvements, right? Whether it's true or not, certainly I think I'd assume that it wasn't true on average, even though it might be true for some firms, right? They're claiming that they have this long-term view because they bought the darn thing and they're stuck with it for a few years, so they have to take a quote-unquote long-term view. Whereas you know people like like you and I, Evan, are, are short-termists uh, because we can buy and sell things whenever we want, and that obviously changes our, our thought horizon. And, you know, I think those are the ostensible benefits. And, you know, obviously, the ostensible negatives are control premiums, massive amounts of fees, illiquidity, etc. Don't forget, you can actually be more efficient at tax managing the portfolio if you care about that as a public guy, as, as opposed to the private. You, there's a little more wiggle room you could do if you if you actually care about that as a taxable investor. A lot of these aren't taxable investors, but if you do. Right. No, exactly. Right. We, we, uh, I think the public equity has a lot of advantages, right? Taxes being one of them, liquidity being another huge one. But I think that first conclusion, right, is that a lot of the stuff that private equity guys think is the source of their returns, like operational improvements or their long-term view or their deep due diligence and their potential investments, is in reality sort of the bells and whistles on an engine, which historically was levered small value. The, the cool part, and feel free to use this phrase, because what you guys are doing mirrors some of what we're doing in other areas where, you know, what you're essentially building is what I like to call like the investable benchmark. And in many ways for private equity, I, I can imagine now or a year from now or five years from now, a lot of the private equity firms will be measured against essentially your algorithm and your funds where they say, well, look, if we can't even 
hit this hurdle on after fees of what these guys are replicating in the public space. What in God's name are we doing wasting all this time and all an effort and, and liquidity, all that good stuff. Um, let me dive into a couple quick questions on the actual implementation. Do you guys make any sort of intentioned sector bets? Is this a go anywhere sort of algorithm and approach? Or is it saying, you know what, traditionally private equity exists in these sectors or mapping what private equity allocations have been the last year, five year, 10 years, and oh, we're going to put more in tech or materials or industrials or healthcare, whatever it may be. Or do you guys just kind of close your eyes and go anywhere, any sort of sector limitations or approach? It's a question I get a lot. And I think another sort of at, as private equity people, if you talk to, you know, the sort of true believer died in the wool private equity guy, and, you know, you ask them how they make returns, you know, they'll say operational improvements, illiquidity, premium, effective use of debt. And then they'll often say, you know, and, and we're, you know, really good at picking industries or, you know, select, you know, timing the industry things, right. But I think if you look empirically, that's not necessarily true. I think that generally private equity tends to be pro-cyclical. So you tend to see private equity folks herding into hot industries at given times. Energy in 2012, 2013, retail in the early 2000s. There are these sort of hot sectors. And if you look at sort of an inter-year period, um, you'll see that actually following their sector allocations is sort of a, a recipe for following the herd in the public equity markets as well. It's really not a judicious strategy, nor is it actually a source of their returns. In fact, most likely it's a, a negative source of it's. It, they're probably losing money if versus just market cap weighting their sectors, which they obviously can't do. And so, are you guys actually targeting a market cap? Or are you saying, you know what, if we find all the cheap companies in the energy sector, the whole portfolio is going to be energy? What, what's the kind of constraints that you guys kind of mentally apply or, or not? Yeah, so we're trying to limit our sector exposure because I think fundamentally what we think of ourselves as experts at is understanding the dynamics of small, cheap, highly levered businesses and especially the deleveraging process as they pay down debt and that accretes to equity holders. So our view is, you know, we don't want to be the leveraged small value you know, dying retail fund, uh, you, you know, uh, maybe we're fine having exposure to that, but we want that to be, you know, no more than uh, the market cap weight of that sector. So that's largely how we think of what we're doing. If we find opportunities that meet all of our criteria, we'll add them. But if we get to a point where there's too much in one sector, we cap it. So generally, we think about not having any one sector be more than 10% of the portfolio. One of the things that you guys I know have written a lot about, and by the way, listeners will post show notes with links to the white papers and a bunch of articles that Dan and crew have, have put out that are great. One of the things you've written a lot about is the actual debt component. Because I'm guessing there's some people listening to this show that are scratching their heads that say, okay, I get the value part, I get the small part, but shouldn't I be investing in a company that doesn't have much debt? So why are you picking these leveraged companies? Isn't that riskier? Won't that hurt returns? So talk a bit about the the leverage and debt portion. I know you've written another paper on this topic. And so kind of how you think about it, because I think it's actually probably 180 degrees backwards from what most listeners would expect the kind of a lot of the takeaways and expectations to be on debt in general. Yeah. And I think, look, value investors, you know, since Graham and Dodd have sort of had this great aversion to debt, right? And they say, we want fortress balance sheets. I mean, there's almost a, a virtue language about their <laughs> preference for firms with cash rather than with debt, to which I respond. It's like, okay, well, all of you have watched the vast majority of, you know, public equity value investors lose to the market index, whereas over in private equity, these guys are using debt out the wazoo and beating the market by 12% per year. So maybe you should, you know, maybe you should be a little bit more open-minded about it, given the returns difference between what they're doing and what you've been doing. And I think that with, with that sort of snark aside, you know, debt is a double-edged sword, right? It is, right? Debt can be good or it can be bad. I would say most of the time it's bad. Uh, I mean, I think that Um, If you're buying expensive companies with debt, it's bad. If you have too much debt, it's bad. If debt to assets or debt to EBITDA or debt to any sort of income or cash flow statement metric, debt to interest, once those metrics get above a certain point, you're on a road to bankruptcy, okay? I mean, it's this iron logic of debt, right? And And that's why, by the way, high prices in private equity are so dangerous, right? 
valuations can be forgiving if you know if there's growth, et cetera. But debt is not forgiving, and so putting large amounts of debt on a company is a really bad idea. That said, if you're buying cheap companies, right, that are really cash flow generative, and if debt is a bad thing, then paying off debt with cash flow is a very good thing, right? And so, you know, what we think of ourselves as doing is is investing in those uni- that universe of companies that are the most likely to pay down debt. And they're most likely to pay down debt because they're generating a lot of cash. And as they pay down, right, if you think about the, you know, the uses of cash, dividends, buybacks, or debt pay down, debt pay down is a much better form of capital allocation than dividends or buybacks because it improves the actual financial health of the business. It reduces interest payments. It reduces bankruptcy risk. So firms that pay down debt see multiple expansion. They see all sorts of positive impacts. And so what we think of ourselves as doing is saying, okay, where are the firms that will most are most likely to delever and will benefit the most from deleveraging? Uh, and that's really the subset of really deep value companies that have debt. And I think within that universe, debt is very positive. Debt increases free cash flow yield. If you buy what we do, our aggregate free cash flow yield in our portfolio is probably about 18 or 20%, which is nuts. I mean, and it's nuts because most people don't look at deleveraging yield as a form of shareholder yield. And thus, they miss the really great things that are going on in some of these businesses because they just say, ah, it's got debt on it. I'm staying away. Is there anything in particular you look for? There was a couple comments you made. One, you're like, you know, there's a certain level where companies are much more likely to go bankrupt. They have a certain level of debt. Is there any sort of ratio you look at there? And second was, are there any variables or factors that you look at that say, you know what, this company is more likely to be a good candidate for paying down debt? What, what are you kind of looking at there? The best predictor of whether a company, you know, persistence, right? So the, 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 there's a high persistence to debt pay down. Firms that have been paying down debt in the past are going to continue to pay down debt by and large. It's it's not that hard, right? I mean, this is in Petrosky's work. I mean, firms that are paying down debt already continue to pay down debt. We've known this for years. It's true empirically. It's the most obvious and simplest predictor. And I think, you know, what's kind of cool about that is that debt pay down has a big positive impact. If you look sort of ex post at what are the drivers of shareholder returns, growing really fast and debt pay down are probably two of the biggest ways that you can drive equity value creation ex post. And whereas predicting whether a company is going to grow or not, or how fast it's going to grow is nearly impossible, predicting debt pay down is pretty easy. And so what you want to do is take the universe of, you know, highly cash generative businesses that are have low debt relative to their cash flow generation and where they've been paying down debt already and build portfolios from there. And that's a place where you're going to see this natural, as the deleveraging process unfolds, this natural expansion of equity value, which happens almost mechanically. So speaking of mechanics, you know, you've written a lot about kind of man versus machine ideas. You know, a lot of what we talked about today is pure quantitative, moving away from, you know, the qualitative high fee practice of private equity to actually to a lot of quantitative measures and metrics. But I've also seen you talk about a little bit about the way you do things where it's not totally 100% quant driven. So what are your general thoughts on kind of how to balance these quantitative rules with with some human insight and instinct? You know, look, this I think this sort of tension for me comes from, you know, I, I worked at Bridgewater, which is a very sort of rules-based investment firm. But I think at Bridgewater, right, you start with logic, right? You say, what logically makes sense? Okay, then let's test the logic. Does it work? You know, it's sort of Bayesian approach. You know, does it? You know, does the evidence show that that logic works? And then can we implement that quantitatively? And then I think when I got to Bank Capital, there were no rules. It was sort of, hey, let's study every investment on a case by case basis and, and come to whatever conclusions we can come to because we're smart people. And I think balancing those experiences, I'm much more on the Bridgewater side. But I think nevertheless, when you look at individual equities, I think there are especially equities with complex, you know, balance sheets. There are ways in which a qualitative analyst can add value. And I think primarily when I've looked at this and I've studied it quite rigorously, how well our portfolio performs relative to a purely algorithmic version, what we're good at is spotting firms that are slightly higher risk, that are perhaps more likely to go bankrupt, that have, say, a looming SEC investigation or accounting problems, or you know the cash flow generation was one time, 
or something along those lines. And gee, I'd love to automate that, but maybe my coding skills aren't good enough yet. So my view is that if you start from a universe of things, which the quantitative algorithm likes, and then you go through and you say, okay, but I know the biggest problem with this universe of you know highly levered companies is bankruptcy risk. Are there things that I can do from a more qualitative perspective based on financial analysis to eliminate a higher number of those bankruptcy risks? And you know, so far we've been able to do that quite well. We're going to keep working to do it if we find that we can create automated rules, which we're always trying to do to replace our judgment with automated rules, we'll do it. But some of those things are, you know, harder to discern than others. So I think I've, I've sort of come to a Deng Xiaoping said, you know, it doesn't matter whether a cat is white or whether a cat is black, it, it's whether it hunts mice. Um, and, you know, so far, we've found that mixing, you know, quantitative tools and, and some level of financial analysis can be really beneficial to our portfolio selection process. You know, my, my favorite example in our world, and I saw you guys were referred to as kind of the vanguard of private equity in one of the articles, is, is Vanguard themselves. You know, we get into a lot of passive and active discussions in our world because we're quants, but the term is so meaningless to me. But my favorite example is always that to a lot of my Boglehead friends that, that Vanguard actually runs it's something like a third of their assets are active, including they just launched a couple new active funds. And actually, they actually manage more active funds than they do passive, which usually surprises a lot of people. <laughs> but but they often say they're the first to admit they're like, look, you know, there's there's places for both. And in some areas in particular, it makes sense to have some active controls anyway. So I want to switch gears a little bit because the people listening to this probably think we're talking about U.S. stocks only. But I know you have a global focus. I know there's one particular market that's been on your radar these days. So why don't, why don't to start, we talk a little top line thoughts on global investing in one market in particular that you've been pretty high on. Sure. So, you know, I think, you know, you and I share sort of an affinity for saying, OK, look, if you've done your quantitative work in one market, you know, you should replicate it and prove it works in other markets uh, and try to build up um, through that evidence that, you know, your strategy is not data mine, but rather is building on logical underlying fundamental rules. And I think, you know, obviously value is one of those fundamental underlying rules that makes sense that it should work across markets, across time, across geography, across asset classes. And we've made a big effort to replicate our quantitative work across markets. And one of the you know, biggest places we've done that, or the most interesting ones, is Japan. And Japan is a, a sort of natural place to go after the U.S. because it's you know, second largest country by market cap and by number of pure number of listings. It's, de- it's a developed market. And because of zero interest rate policy, there's a fair amount of levered firms there. And what we found, which is quite interesting in Japan, is if you compare it to the U.S., in the U.S., small value and levered small value, you know, my sort of specialty, is more volatile than the large cap indices. It has bigger drawdowns than the large cap indices. And that makes sense, right? I think we sort of think small companies should be more volatile than large companies and levered companies should be more volatile than unlevered companies and, and value stocks. I'm not sure where my intuition would lead me on whether value stocks should be more or less volatile, but certainly size and, and leverage should be increasing volatility. But what we found in Japan is that we had a similar return profile, very attractive, looked like private equity return stream, but actually about half the drawdowns of the Nikkei and lower volatility than the Nikkei, which I just thought was crazy, right? I mean, how could that possibly be true? And so I, I said, well, first, you know, what about actual people? That, you know, I, I'm, I've been backtesting, I've been studying the markets, but let's make sure, just sanity check, you know, what is like DFA's Japan fund? How do they do in 08? And, you know, you pull it up, and it, it's down 30% when the Nikkei is down 50. And you say, well, this is crazy. How, how is it that small caps are, are less volatile than large caps? And, and, you know, in my universe, how is it that leverage isn't adding to the volatility at all? And what I found, and what's really interesting is that, Japan essentially doesn't allow bankruptcy. So technically, there are bankruptcies in Japan, but the actuarial bankruptcy rate is about one one hundredth of what it is in the U.S. Basically, in the Japanese culture, you know, socio-political scheme is is entirely focused on guaranteeing lifetime employment and stability. It's a shame culture. If you you know do something shameful, it's 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 very consequential. It's not like here where you can sort of reinvent yourself like a phoenix. And so as a result, 
there are huge amounts of resources put into making sure that troubled companies don't go bankrupt. And that has a negative effect in some companies, right? So um, this drives a lot of Japanese CEOs to hoard cash on the balance sheet to prevent the eventuality that some crisis causes them to, you know, have some issue where they can't pay employees. They hoard cash. They do all sorts of other things, which aren't great for shareholders. But the levered portion, those that have debt on the balance sheet, are very oriented towards debt pay down. Their capital allocation policies are good. And because of the unique scenarios uh, of what's going on in you know, uh, uh, Japan and the banking system, the political system, there have almost no additional risk of bankruptcy. And they're borrowing at about you know, less than 1%. So debt is almost free and almost zero risk. And so you know, basically in Japan, we've got this unique market where what we do works really well, but it works really well at about half the half the drawdowns and half the volatility of what we do in the in, in the United States. You know, by the time this podcast comes out, the next day I will be leaving for Japan so I can give you some on the boots feedback, not on capital allocation, but rather something else that is not much known about Japan, which it's one of the best skiing destinations in the entire world. Oh, are you going to Hokkaido? going to be in Hokkaido. Uh, one of the podcast sponsors was actually a ski pass. So hopefully get in a free few days at Niseko from Mountain Collective. You're welcome, Mountain Collective, for extra free mention there. But the uh, they actually have more snow already in Japan than uh, most U.S. resorts get all year. So it's pretty snowy over there. I'm pretty excited. And we'll, we'll squeeze in a few meetings here and there as well. But uh, excited, excited to go over there. Are you, are you a skier at all? I do like skiing, although I've never gone skiing in uh, Hokkaido. I'd like to. Well, it's the, the whole island of Japan is actually pretty great. It's like they have all these tons and tons of mom and pop little resorts everywhere in addition to the big olympic size places but it's uh it's really special and different place because not only do you get good skiing but you get to have udon at lunch and sushi for dinner and onsens in the afternoon so highly highly recommended it's pretty awesome all right we got totally off topic what are we talking about so capital allocation you know it's interesting because we've noticed a, a, a slight cultural shift that at least it's starting to play out a little more we're seeing more of a culture of focus on capital allocation in Japan. And I don't know if this is, you know, going to take a year or 10 years or 20, but you're starting to see more in the way of like buybacks and more of kind of focus on on the balance sheet and what to do with their cash. Is that something you guys see as well? Is that a trend or is that, are they so far in the early stages that it's just could last a while? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the first striking thing is just to notice how dramatically different their policies are than in the US, right? If, if you just graph. Uh, Michael Mabison has done a great job. You know, you just graph shareholder yield in Japan versus the US or dividend policies or the amount of buybacks. I mean, it's just exponentially lower in Japan. And all that capital is going towards hoarding cash on the balance sheet, right? which seems to be, you know, everyone's favorite idea among CEOs in Japan. And I think, you know, you and I are the first ones to notice this problem. And it's, it's so obvious in the statistics. And I think a lot of um, firms out there have said, well, gee, you know, why don't we go be activists? You know, let's let's you know, let's get in a plane, let's fly over there, you know, let's meet with this Japanese CEO and let's explain to him the virtues of dividends and buybacks, um, and 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 explain to him that we're buying you know five percent of his outstanding shares, and thus he should listen to us. And I think, by and large, um, you know, that approach um, has not really have resonated with uh, Japanese culture particularly well. Um, it hasn't really worked particularly well. And it's been sort of a constant stream of frustrations and disappointments for those people who think that they're going to change Japanese culture to be just like Wall Street. Yeah. So, and I think our view, in contrast, is you know why not work with the cultural logic of Japan? Um, and and I think you know look, if every one of these CEOs really wants to hoard cash and that's their all-out goal, you know why don't we just find the ones that are really levered? Where the CEO is going to spend every day, you know, paying down decks. He's so eager to be a cash hoarder, um, and that way, you know, we get all the shareholder return, and we don't have to waste our time trying to convince any Japanese CEOs to dramatically change their culture overnight. And it's funny because we were there in September, you know, meeting with uh, a few of our uh, companies we're invested in to sort of ask some of these basic questions to to understand the cultural logic as well as we understood the quantitative logic of what we were doing. Um, and we, we started asking, you know, 
gee, you know, um, you know, your debt's free. There's no bankruptcy risk. You know, why in heaven's name would you pay it off? You know, why wouldn't you borrow more? And, you know, one of the CFOs said, well, you know, gee, our banks want us to borrow more. In fact, you know, even two years ago when we broke every covenant, um, and uh, and couldn't really pay our interest payments. They actually just lowered our interest rate and gave us more debt. Uh, and, and we're so so well, like, why in heaven's name would you pay it down? These these lenders seem amazing. Seems completely risk free. And they said, oh well, they they come over every every month. They come and they meet with us, um, and they ask us about spending and about capital expenditures. And they try to tell us not to spend money on things and not to, not to buy things. And it's so annoying. And we're so eager to get those guys out of here so we can you know, do acquisitions and spend more money and, you know, hire more people. And so we're just focused on getting rid of those bankers and, and paying down our debt. And uh, my partner, Nick, and I just looked at each other and said, you know, this is this is excellent. We, we can just outsource our strategic vision to the Japanese banks who are already monitoring this and, and making you do what we would have wanted you to do. Um, and, and it's, you know, you're, you're already doing because you want to, and, and we don't have to convince you or you know, do any fancy PowerPoint presentations or, 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 or buy a large percentage of your shares to convince you to do it. Do you guys kind of, when you look globally, are you making any sort of similar to sectors? Are you making any sort of constraints? Is it kind of go anywhere? Do you dip into emerging markets? Is it purely developed? What's the, what's the kind of thinking as you look, look around the world? Yeah, I think it's similar to yours. I mean, we're looking for value. And so, you know, Japan is great because it's the cheapest of the major developed markets. We have a dedicated Japan fund. We also have a global fund. Our global fund is, you know, 35, 40% Japan. We also see a lot of attractive opportunities for what we do in North America and in the UK. But really, you know, we rarely, you know, the emerging markets, the big emerging market, China, way too expensive for us. Capital markets aren't developed enough for firms to have leverage. And by and large, our strategy, right, we're, we're looking for firms that are gen- going to generate equity returns through deleveraging and cash flow generation. Um, and that universe of things is not the high growth emerging market, Baidu, Alibaba. It's not a bat. bat these aren't bats or fangs or, or, or whatever. We want the sort of um, things that people think are boring and slow and steady. And those are much more likely in a you know low growth country like Japan or mainland Europe or you know the U.S. and Canada than they are. Um, in China or India. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember Japan is actually the largest allocation by double for our foreign uh, developed value fund. So pretty similar viewpoint there. What um, do you guys think about currencies at all? Do you hedge out any of the currencies risk? I know a lot of the listeners would probably be, they always ask this question. They love this question for some reason. Uh, how do you guys think about currencies at all? Hedging risk, you know, I, I, I think Better than hedging risk is to find risks that you get paid to take. But I think, you know, in terms of hedging, you know, with the yen in particular, which is our largest, you know, FX exposure, um, the nice thing about the yen is that there's a, a negative correlation between the yen's movements and the returns of Japanese equities, such that, you know, in bad environments, the yen goes up, and in good equity environments, the yen goes down. Um, and so you have this natural added sort of dampening of volatility. And you sort of say, well, I'm happy giving up a little bit of returns and I'm doing well. If, gee, I'm going to get a big you know, cushion on the downside um, as the yen appreciates any sort of bad market. So because I think of the unique sort of flight to safety characteristics of the yen, um, you know, we, we sort of like having unhedged exposure. And I don't hedge my portfolios. I think you know, Bridgewater sort of drilled into me that in the long term, there should be no um, you know, there should be no premium for currency trades, right? You should, you know, everything should sort of come out in the wash in the end. Um, so unless you have some sort of very sophisticated currency trading system, you know, you're better off not hedging. Um, Jeff had poked me a second ago for a question. We're, we're kind of past it, but still interesting. Um, is there sort of like a an opposite cousin of Japan? If you look culturally at kind of the way the companies think in Japan. Is there any sort of country you come across where the companies just spin like sailors and um, where you notice sort of like a totally opposite approach to capital allocation? I, I can't, I mean, I, I don't know off the top of my head if I can think I mean, of any, but... I mean, the United States. Yeah, I mean, I, that would have been my guess. <laughs> I mean, we're such an outlier globally in terms of, you know, creative destruction and bankruptcy rates in terms of, um, you know, shareholder policies and uh, you know, and so it's sort of funny, like, uh, you know, for me, you know, trading U.S. public equities and then going to Japan, um, it, there are a few interesting differences, right? One is, you know, the U.S. is, you know, small caps are much more volatile than in Japan. 
So it's like going from trading stocks to trading bonds. Um, and then, you know, it's interesting, the U.S. is so competitive. There are probably about 10,000, um, you know, funds focused on the U.S. public equity market. There are probably about 50 actively managed funds focused on the Japanese public equity market, right? So it's just a, you know, crazy differential as soon as you sort of leave the, you know, um, sort of um, uh, highly competitive U.S. market and go abroad. Um, I think there are, you know, there's much less competition and I think much more ability to, you know, for alpha generation. So we're going to segue a little bit. we got a couple more questions. Um, would love to keep you forever. You know, kind of like, like us here at Cambria, you, you guys are pretty transparent. You've written a couple of white papers we'll link to. You've written a, a bunch of great mailing list articles, which we'll put a link to. But you've also participated as one of the more highly rated participants on some zero is that something you still are involved with and and it's interesting because it's for the listeners it's a community of buy side analysts that got started by one of the i think original founders of facebook any comments there any thoughts because i know at least at one point you were uh, pretty pretty highly active there yeah and i still i like posting some of our ideas so you know we like to um you know once we made an investment to write up sort of the core thesis or the logic of it, which, you know, if you read, you know, 50 of our write-ups, they basically all say the same thing, which is it's cheap, it's paying off debt, it's going to get less cheap. And as the debt goes down, the equity value is going to go up. But we find, you know, new and creative ways to say that about all different companies. Um, but we still, you know, do post a lot of our ideas on some zero. And, you know, really the the reason I do that and the reason I write as much as I do um, is because I think a lot of these ideas are controversial, right? I mean, in a world where 90% plus of institutional investors think that private equity is God's gift to mankind, uh, you know, um, saying, gee, you know, have you guys noticed that private equity has now performed the market since 2010? You'd have been better off in the S&P 500 than in, the, in private equity funds, right? H- have, you, have you thought about the dynamics of going, how big of a deal it is to go from three turns of debt to six turns of debt? Um, you know, these are controversial things that I think a lot of people um, don't agree with. They, they find them unsettling. Um, and, and my view is that, you know, because I want to change people's minds, because I think I'm controversial but right, um, I want to publish and share my ideas as much as possible. Uh, you know, I want to write the white papers. I want to, you know, show individual examples of this on the secure, individual security level. Um, and I want to, you know, um, write um, in, you know, magazines like Institutional Investor, et cetera, to, you know, share broader ideas about, you know, what is good, how to how to make good investment decisions, how to make, how, you know, and and what are sort of the common traps that that people get into. There's a there's a great article that we'll post a link to that we're not going to get in today that you talk about Michael Porter and Five Forces Framework. So we're we don't have time to to get into it too long, but we'll post a link. Um, what's got you excited? You know, you a lot of the research you've done. I'm, I'm there's, like us. There's always refinements and new ideas. But what are you excited about now? Is looking forward? Um, is most of your time spent? delving into these companies and, and kind of refining the portfolio? Like how often are you actually trading this? Is it something where you're doing like a once a year screen and then you're picking a few stocks? Second is like, how active is that? And are you actually, uh, what's the sell process? I forgot to ask that earlier. Is this something yeah, just kind of a time-based or, and then second is what's got you excited going forward on the research world? Yeah, so, yeah we re- rebalance uh, quarterly, um, like I think most quantitatively uh, oriented people as new data comes out. Um, and then we manage the portfolio in the interim. And, and I think, you know, just in terms of some research findings, um, you know, one that we've been, you know, pretty excited about is just the importance of, or, or the predictive uh, power of short interest as a metric. Um, we, we, we are sort of evangelists for the idea that if you're trading small cap value, you should just be paranoid about any company that's small cap value and has high short interest. Um, so we've, you know, that's a recent addition to our, you know, portfolio strategy is, you know, really using that as a risk signal, getting out of anything that where short interest goes up, you know, using that as a negative screen against what we do. So I think, you know, that's an example. We spend a lot of our time on, you know, refinements, trying to new quantitative tests, um, and I think, you know, as anyone will find, most ideas are bad ideas. So, you, you know, you try 10 things and maybe if you're lucky, one works. Um, and, and then you wonder if that one thing is data mined. And so you test it somewhere else and maybe half the time it works, it's true and half the time it isn't. But I think we're, we spent, we're spending a lot of time 
replicating our approach in different markets, trying to tailor our approach to different markets. So this year we're really focused on Europe of going UK, Italy, Germany, France, and trying to discern you know, whether our approach makes sense in those markets, what are the refinements we need to make to our, our model. Um, and then I think the other thing that we've um, you know, been focused on is you know, I think trying to refine our, our, our sell process. I think you, know, you think about how much work we all put into figuring out what to buy um, and then how comparatively little other than sort of saying, well, you know, let's sort of rotate into the things that are the most attractive buys and out of the things that are, are no longer attractive on our screens. Um, but are there better ways to refine that? And I think that's another big question we're, we're working on this year. Um, so I think, you know, most of our time is on that sort of quantitative research. And I think, you know, then probably a third of our time is on the individual companies of trying to say, hey, well, can we dig into these things? Can we find, you know, sort of mitigating positive things about them that make them more attractive or negative things really that are, are going to make them not a good fit for the portfolio? Uh, and then as we do that, are there things that we learn from looking at the companies that we say, oh, gee, we've seen a pattern here that, you know, a lot of the times the, the computer is giving us a false signal on, you know, shipping companies and, gee, we got to understand why that's the case, et cetera. So let's say that, and this is kind of split into two parts. Let's say the listeners listening to this today, obviously an institution, there's a very clear bucket for this, which is you could substitute straight up, you know, the, the private equity exposure for uh, a quant, uh, this approach you're talking about. But let's say there's the individual listening in today. Is this something that you would say, you know what, I think you could sub out your entire equity exposure. Do you think say, you know, no, maybe you just want to put it in for small caps. Like what's, what's your theory? Where does this fit into an investor's portfolio? Yeah. So I think, you know, especially our, you know, anywhere we're, we're expo- outside of Japan, Japan, I think is much lower risk, but for our global fund, you know, we're, we're in the bucket of, you know, higher volatility alternatives to mainstream, you know, you, you know, we're not trying to fill the 80% of your portfolio that, you know, I think, um, you know, there are a lot of people that have views on how to do that. But, you know, that's going to be largely driven by more conventional uh, equity exposures. We're trying to say, hey, what can we provide you that's an alternative to that? Um, and, and really, that's going to fit that, you know, you know, I think the reason people allocate to private equity is because they want, you know, the really added enhanced return profile that comes from private equity or came from private equity historically. Um, and I think, you know, we, our view is that that's really the bucket we want to be in. You know, what's the, you know, if Yale has 15% of their portfolio on private equity, I would say an individual investor should, you know, max out at their exposure to, you know, leverage small value and private equity at 15%. And that's probably even more aggressive than I'd recommend. Um, I think we really talk to our investors about saying, you know, we are purveyors of hopefully beautiful niche investment strategies that work really well. But, you know, we're not trying to solve 100% of your portfolio. We're trying to fit in uh, 5 or 10% where we can add some alpha, give you some extra return in a corner of your portfolio, and replace, I think, importantly, you know, we, we really are bearish on the uh, private equity uh, industry and the massive amounts of money flooding in there. And we're really trying to talk to people and say, gee, you know, I know everyone, every investment consultant in the world is telling you that that's the best idea ever and that it's incredibly low risk. Um, but be careful. Um, it's not going to work as planned. And you'd be much better off doing what private equity firms did in the 80s and 90s when they actually made money for investors um, in excess of the public markets than doing what they've been doing for the past eight years, which has not beaten the S&P 500. Do you ever get any requests or interests or inquiries about the opposite side of the book, about shorting? Do they ever say, you know what, Dan, I love your long-only private equity, but that's going to be too much risk for me having a small cap exposure. Can you pair this with some sort of short exposure? Do you ever get any requests about that or interest or thoughts or anything else? Yeah, we do. Short, shorting's hard. It, that is for sure. Um, Dan, it's been awesome. We got to wind down. We our favorite question we ask, although we got to update it for 2018. Uh, what's been your most memorable investment or trade of your career? Good, bad. First one that comes to mind. Is there any one that particularly sticks out? Ooh, that's a good question. You know, I, I, I love that um, uh, about a year and a half ago, we invested in a uh, Japanese uh, chemical company called Ishihara Sengyo Kaisha, um, which uh, was the sort of Exxon Valdez of uh, Japan. Um, in 2002 and 2003, they'd, they'd, been caught, they'd been pouring chemicals into a stream. They were caught in 08, you know, huge corporate scandal. 
Um, and I think, you know, what's I think sort of so fascinating about Japanese culture, rather than going bankrupt and letting the government deal with the cleanup, the company stayed public and agreed to take on a massive environmental liability, essentially to take out a huge amount of borrowing and then to use that money to clean it up themselves and then use their cash flow over the next five or 10 years to pay off that environmental liability, which I thought was a very honorable and, and wonderful thing for a company to do. But you fast forward to you know, 2015, 20, or, sorry, 2016, 2017, this company, which produces a commodity chemical, was trading at you know, three and a half times EBITDA. Global peers traded at like 11, 12 times EBITDA. And you started to ask, well, why is it so cheap? And they said, well, you know, look at the bad things they did. They said, they did those things in 2003. But you know, in Japanese culture, it's so shame. You know, nobody wanted to touch this thing with a 10-foot pole because of what they'd done um, and their bad uh, image. And so... And, and actually, in 2016, they actually finished paying off all their environmental liabilities. So, I, I, I you know, uh, we in, we invested in that. It was a great investment for us. And I think one of the things that I liked about it, it was such a classic example of, of what we do, and, and particularly in Japan, you know, this the the virtues of deleveraging. Um, how oftentimes um, value is a you know low valuation is a punishment for bad things that happened in the past, rather than anything prospective about a business. Uh, and I think, you know, the benefits of, you know, being willing to take those sorts of risks. I love it. Dan, this has been so much fun, super insightful. We're going to post a lot of the show note links. Where can people find more if they want to keep up to date with your writing, everything else going on in the Verdad world? Where do they go? So you go to my website, www.verdadcap.com. Um, we write a weekly uh, research email. If you you know fill out a you know fill out a little form on our website, you can sign up for our uh, email list. Um, we, we we try to be controversial and interesting uh, and empirically driven, but that's probably the best way to get to know more about us and and, and our firm. Awesome, Dan. Thanks for taking the time today. Thanks so much, Mo. Listeners, thanks for taking the time to sit in and join us. You can always find more episodes at mebfaber.com forward slash podcasts. If you're loving the show, hating it, whatever, please leave us a review. You can always subscribe on iTunes, Overcast, Castro, all the good apps. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. <laughs>